Hello and welcome to this new episode of Lights on Europe. This is Lucia Kleštincová. I hope you're staying safe and well in the midst of coronavirus crisis and that you have a bit more time to listen to podcasts like this. Today we're linking coronavirus to Brexit. You'll be surprised probably to hear what are the links. We are speaking to Laura Shields, who used to be a journalist with CNN, BBC, CNBC, and then became a communications consultant, active with many civic groups like British in Europe who are actively fighting for the rights of British citizens living in the EU in the run-up to the Brexit date that we are now experiencing. And so we're looking at what are the consequences of the Brexit process and the whole decision on the mental health of um, citizens and families. What are the practices that we can apply when we're going through outbreaks like the coronavirus crisis? And what is the engagement with the public authorities? And what is uh, Laura's opinion on the readiness of the public administrations to deal with crises like this. So listen to her advice and maybe you will also get a tip or two on how to best channel the energy when you're frustrated about what you're seeing happening in the public space uh, in order to protect your mental health. Hi, Laura. Thanks for accepting the invitation. Thank you for having me. We were supposed to speak primarily about your engagement with civil society in the UK uh, in the run-up to the Brexit decision and during the negotiations. But now that we're in the middle of the coronavirus crisis, I'm wondering what is your thinking about the general authorities and how they are capable of solving this kind of crisis? But if we talk specifically about Belgium, I think that what the government has now decided to do is decisive and quite firm. I mean, whether or not it will spread, limit the spread of the virus, who knows? I mean, I'm no kind of expert. But I think that it sounds like you do have to take decisive action. So closing schools or rather suspending lessons, closing bars and restaurants, whilst it seems drastic, if that's what it takes to flatten the curve, or whatever they call it, I think that's quite good. Obviously, it's hugely disruptive for a lot of people. I have a seven-year-old child. Um, we're not, the school hasn't put out information yet about what we'll be able to do with him uh, and the other kids. And obviously both my husband and I work, although I haven't got any work at the moment because everybody's cancelling it. So I'm in this strange position where I might be a full-time mum for the next few weeks. Uh, but actually, I also wanted to have a rethink about the business anyway. So Exactly. It, this is one of the greatest opportunities. I feel that not only is it the biggest home office teleworking experiment mm. for large organizations like administrations, but it's also going to force entrepreneurs all around the world really to rethink their business models. And there's so many people like you who are so dependent on physical presence and provision of their services which is dependent on traveling, at least within the country, if not internationally. And so if we were to choose a positive aspect of this whole thing, I'm wondering whether it might bring some kind of transformation in terms of our business models and operations. Actually, you know, I was having this conversation with a client of mine just last week because I was in Warsaw with her. She's based in Munich and Warsaw Airport was dead. Brussels Airport had been dead. Munich Airport had been dead. And we have a... We have a, what's the word? We had a trip planned for to go to Prague next week and that's been postponed for obvious reasons too. But actually we're in the process of working out what we might be able to do remotely. Now I have long argued that with things like media training, public speaking, you have to have face-to-face contact because it's inc- at least the first time you meet because it's incredibly difficult to establish trust 
a rapport, you need eye contact, you need to get a lot out of people. And you can do practice sessions if you know someone, there's a basis of trust, you can do that remotely. But I've always felt that for the first time, at least it needs to be together. However, at the same time, I've also been very worried about my carbon footprint. So getting on planes is something that I'm not comfortable with. You know, I'm vegetarian in my mate, I don't eat dairy. I mean, I'm very concerned about my carbon footprint. And so flying is something that I'm really trying to find ways around. But I would continue to do it because obviously client needs are important. But we're in the process of rethinking this. And in a way, I think coronavirus is kind of a foretelling of things to come. Like While I'm very unhappy about the shock that this is clearly going to have on a large number of people and business, and I don't wish that on anyone, I think for a lot of people it is going to basically challenge them to restructure the way that they work and organise their businesses. And I think that if we can see less unnecessary travel coming out of it, I think that's a good thing. And so one of the concrete examples is also obviously the work of uh, the European administration where all of us are somehow engaged with the Brexit process that you were uh, very actively uh, involved in. And so I'm wondering what is your thinking about the impact of the crisis on the Brexit preparations really because we are all of us awaiting next end of the year the British government have said they are not going to ask for extension so everybody's now asking themselves is the crisis gonna be really misused or used by the government to ask for the extension of the transition period because we're really running out of the time and the negotiations are not going to be possible in physical presence which is required in case of sensitive subjects like these. Well, I think anyone who makes predictions at the moment, particularly about Brexit, I've always said is like lying, delusional or stupid. But I do think we're in a very different political environment than we were even a few weeks ago. You know, we have a major public health crisis going on, which is going to have a severe, which is already having a severe impact on markets, the economy, restrictions. And I think that actually what people will be looking for is they will be looking for government, particularly in the UK. I mean, you know, people will be looking to the government to handle this well. And I think this does potentially give the Johnson administration cover for seeking to extend the negotiations if things are still a mess further down the line because there wouldn't be any justification for it. The UK's already left the EU. So what we're talking about is an extension to the negotiations around the future relationship. Equally, they may decide to just push on with it. I mean, you know, the, the coronavirus is actually also very good cover for them to push through a deal that is actually going, a trade deal that is actually going to really have a severe impact on economic growth and jobs in the UK. So we had, the, there was a budget recently, and whilst it was all focusing on the coronavirus and the plans to spend and the regions and all the rest of it, actually the growth forecasts and the productivity forecasts for the economy are incredibly downbeat, we're talking. So it may be a good mask for them to push it through because they want this very bare bones deal and they don't really want to have to explain it to the British public because once actually the implications of it are explained, public opinion could shift quite quickly. And so where your engagement with the Brexit process was so powerful is that you started talking about this macro politics being personal and the personal always being political. And so what I find interesting is that now with the public health crisis, now when the problems are physical and we see people suffering almost borderline dying, it really attracts so much media presence, political presence, financial support. Whereas during the Brexit crisis, the health crisis in a sense was there as well because of the mental consequences on the people and so we talk about the brexit nation who 
who was massively impacted at an emotional and mental health level by what happened, but there wasn't much much of a conversation about it, I feel, or maybe it was happening in, in closed circles or, or ex- expert groups. So talk to us a little bit about what is your engagement in the whole theme of mental health impacts of Brexit on the Brits or probably the wider European population. It's a very good question. I think that the impact has been enormous and I also think that for a very long time the impact has been unacknowledged or shut down by uh, a large number number of people who thought Brexit was a good idea because they didn't want to hear that people were distressed by it. They thought it was just, a, you know, that they were being wet to or this was a decision that was going through. In my own case, I think that, and I know a lot of people who've been personally affected by this, including myself, I mean, I've, I've been quite open in the past about how I've had mental health issues, and I had one in the run-up to the referendum in 2016. You know, this is existential for a lot of people, and we're not even talking about the day-to-day life aspect of it. I mean, in my case, you know, I, I, my business was threatened by Brexit. I've been lucky enough to take Belgian nationality, but I have a cross-border service business and I've worked in 18 EU countries. So losing free movement was going to be quite a big deal for my business because that's how I met half my money. But it's existential for a lot of people. Um, and that's before you, that is in, you know, you have people talking about Armageddon, the end of the world, you know, this was sort of the political rhetoric, super states. And there were a lot of people who just really, really felt that huge parts of their identity were being ripped away. So we get huge numbers of, um, in my campaign group, which is called British in Europe, we get huge numbers of people coming to us who are having mental health problems. They don't necessarily want to go public. Likewise, EU citizens living in the UK, but also lots of British people living in the UK. I mean, I think we cannot underestimate just how divisive and damaging this whole experience has been to people's individual psyche as well as the national psyche. And Johnson's come in and he talks about wanting to be the great healer and to bring people together. Haven't seen much evidence of that so far. Healing seems to be to say to the half of the country that didn't want Brexit, suck it up. Do you feel there was research done? I don't know, I've never really checked. Was there research done on the on the mental health consequences of Brexit on on the Brits, on the international families, business owners, public servants, because there was massive impact of this also on the public service in the UK, where many people who were committed to public service simply took themselves out of the system because it was heartbreaking for them to be part of, you know, the machinery generating the decision that they were so disagreeing with. I have seen various what's the word specific projects that have been set up in terms of major research I don't know if that's been done yet I should imagine that it will be but I think most of the things that I see at the moment are anecdotal but there are things like evidence taking sessions I think there was one in the European Parliament a few weeks ago there have been others where there have been events to sort of try and raise the issue around it I think that it is a hugely you know I I think it's huge I think the extent of the mental health crisis, if that's the word, or mental health health challenge posed by Brexit shouldn't be underestimated. And I think a lot of people in the UK are going to be very gloomy about where it's going long term, because also even I live here now, to take my example, I feel incredibly lucky that I'm not there. And I think that one of the things that's compounding probably the mental health challenge for a lot of people in the UK is that they feel trapped. 
Do you feel the peak of the crisis has been overcome already because it's been a couple of years already and people had some time to process the fact that this is happening as a historical decision? Or is the worst phase going to kick in while, when the consequences actually kick in and, and the travelers and the business people are going to start feeling it in well, the everyday life? There's a, I don't know if you know, uh, you know who John Cleese is, who was in Monty Python? The comedian. Yes. So he did a film in the 80s, I think, called Clockwise. And, and one of the, fr- the lines that came out of that film was, the hope, it's the despair I can handle, it's the hope that kills me, or it's the hope that I can't deal with. And I think that for an awful lot of people, while there was some hope that Brexit could be stopped, that was the thing that was really destabilizing. I think when Johnson got his huge majority in November, in December, even though it was on less than half of the vote, for a lot of people, they were like, right, I'm just, you know, it's decisive. I don't like it, but it's time to move on. I think a lot of people are still fighting it very, very angry and haven't found a way to resolve that. Hugely angry with half of the country, hugely angry with the government. In my own case, I think anger is corrosive and I think it doesn't achieve anything. And I'm not for a minute judging other people who are angry, but I look at myself, I look at my own behavior, I look at how I react when I log into Twitter. I can feel my lizard brain getting angry. I just don't think it's very helpful. So I've made a conscious decision to step back, but I've also been quite lucky because the group that I've been involved with, which has done very concrete work, on campaigning for the rights of British people living on the continent, EU citizens living in the UK. It's damage limitation, but it's actually concrete. It's not just sitting there. It's not revolutionary in the sense that it's trying to overturn something as enormous as Brexit. So in that sense, I feel like I've been able to make a lot of my peace by doing, as you say, personal is political. So in that sense, I've made my peace, but I think a lot of people aren't there yet. And, you know, things happen in different stages. I do think what would be really helpful is if there could be some kind of if not truth and reconciliation commission, then some concerted effort to bring the diff- different parts of the country and people with different opinions together. Because I don't think the politicians are going to do it. And I think that a lot, I found it very therapeutic when I engaged with a couple of people who voted leave. It really helped me to, because I really liked them as people. And I don't think those conversations are happening enough yet. So this is exactly what I feel is part of the healing or the solution when you've managed to convert that anger into civic activism in a sense because you were called by the group because of your expertise in journalism, communication, public speaking to help them create greater leverage and, and have a bigger, I guess, louder and more constructive voice in the in the project that they were putting together. And so I was wondering whether this engagement is somehow, again, if the wave is already over and now kind of overshadowed by the corona crisis or do you think the worst is yet to come and so is this some kind of a call for more people to continue being engaged also for their own healing i think the worst it depends how you define the worst i mean you know if the worst the worst for some people is the not knowing you know where is it you know and now you could say we don't know what the outcome is going to be but we do know that brexit is happening i think the uk is probably going to have a very very tough period i don't know but i think some people are already pricing that in and are prepared for it i think others may be surprised I think that some people need to stay engaged, like they want to hold the government to account. You know, there's a huge number of people who feel that the the Leave campaign was genuinely squalid and intellectually disrespectful and that they won by basically cheating and intellectually cheating people, like just making stuff up. And then the way in which Theresa May and then Boris Johnson pursued the negotiations was as though they had some huge mandate to go for the hardest Brexit possible, which they didn't. So I think there are a lot of people who are going to be very much using their 
what do you call it, political energy to hold the government to account on its promises and also on its lies. The problem is, is that there seems to be a government that's immune to a lot of that criticism. You know, we're in very uncharted times. It's like Trump. You know, he can say whatever he likes and, and his base still love him. But whilst this may have worked for these kinds of leaders at some point, we are in a different situation. You know, campaigning is much easier than governing. And governing when you need the support of the civil service and all these people that you call the deep state who you claim to despise, very, very different. So I think that people might get a lot of healing out of this just by also seeing how things unfold. I wonder if there's any diversity in what we're talking about because UK is obviously very heterogeneous and so we because also the vote was so different in England all the way to the north, etc. Do you feel the feeling is different now in Scotland or in Northern Ireland where it's so messy and everybody's trying to understand how the Irish protocol of the deal will be implemented in practice? Do you feel there's a different kind of degree of the pain or, or, the, or yeah, the feeling that people have across the UK about the whole situation? I don't feel close enough to each of the regions You know, and obviously I'm not close enough to, to England anymore to be able to make a, sort of a general overview. So you as a group, you were targeting the whole country? Yes, I we guess. were. I feel that, well, and Westminster really, because we need, it's politicians that you have to influence, but also trying to get public opinion around the idea that we're not all just rich, old patent pensioners living on the Riviera. But I think in terms of, what, in terms of the energy, I think in Northern Ireland it's just a miss, mess. And they're sort of rather despondent about how it's all going to work. And, I th and my overall sense is that Scotland are looking for, they're biding their time and looking for a way to have a referendum and rejoin. Yeah. You know, I think it's a very different kind of energy that you probably have there. And in England, I don't know. I so what would be your call to action for people who now wonder whether they can still channel the energy a bit more constructively for the whole Brexit cause? My real call to action is that I think go out and find somebody who has very different opinions from you and learn how to talk to them respectfully. Because the thing that I'm most worried about is polarisation. And I think that, this is my personal view, I think it's in the interest of the government to keep people divided because it shores up the base as much as anything else. But I also think that actually it's therapeutic to go out and find people who have very different opinions from you and find common ground, listen respectfully, understand where they're coming from and that even if you don't agree, you're able to do that because I just think that going forward with so much anger and so much lack of curiosity about how other people think is very, very damaging for society. So I think that would be my call to action. We go out and find someone with a massively different opinion. This is going to be hard during the COVID crisis. I though. agree. Well, you could Skype. I'm not saying, yeah, but, well, yes, this is a longer term thing though, but you're right. It is going to be hard. <laughs> We're all locked under lockdown. But I do think that this is, I, I'm very worried about how you can get whole sections of society that think things that one section thinks something's acceptable and despises the other side, like despises. I'm not even talking about disagreeing with. I'm thinking that they're bad people. I think that's really dangerous. And I think that it's also not healthy for people within those groups. I don't think it's healthy to get so angry when you think about people who have different opinions to you. I think it's about restoring civility in discourse it's about understanding difference and accepting it and also be comfortable with accepting not winning as a result so that would be my call to action find someone however you do it and have a civilized conversation with me you can do it on twitter do you think it's going to have an impact the fact that we're all under lockdown and are not allowed to travel and get out do you think it's going to have an impact on the quality of conversation on social media are people going to go much more crazy and extreme because there's going to be so much of the energy not channeled through the other 
social interactions. I mean, Twitter's already a hellhole anyway yes. in terms of how people behave on it. I mean, not everybody who's on there is, but I do think you get a very distorted view of what the world is like. Uh, I think it was Ricky Gervais, the comedian, who said that if you looked at Twitter as a snapshot of what real life was actually like, you would think there was a constant state of war between the Nazis and trans people, which there just isn't. So I don't know is my the answer to that. I think people will have more screen time. I think lots of people will probably sit at home and think that, oh, maybe they're the next Isaac Newton and they'll try and write some, you know, try and discover something or write that novel that they had inside them all the time. I don't see, I think the people who are avid social media users, I don't see it getting massively different. I think this is just another aspect of that. I think what could be interesting is watching the disinformation aspects of the public information crisis, how they get used, but also this sense that, and I'm thinking about this particularly in the context of Trump, I mean, I'm half American as well, and populist in general, is this is really not their comfort zone at all, you know. And so I'm quite interested to see how this plays out on social media, because I think that all it's a situation that's really not to their advantage, even though they can spread the fake news and stuff, I think that it's so not a situation that works naturally for them that we could see that conversation getting a bit more frenzied. But, you know, what who I say, I, I try, I'm trying to limit how much social media I'm on these days because I think it's toxic. And uh, actually, I feel much better when I'm not on it. And I think a lot of people do. Yes. But I also don't think it's actually useful to use it if you have spare time. Don't do it. Don't be on Twitter. Go and do something useful. Read a book. I'm reading, Machia- write a book. I'm reading Machiavelli's The Prince for the first time. And I'm oh. learning a lot from that. So the last question I'd like to ask now that we are really in an extreme kind of phase of this year and health, the physical and mental health is going to be of utmost importance for everybody. What is your one self-care practice that you are going to be focusing on in the coming weeks? Exercise, eat healthily, keep your mind stimulated, know that you're not alone and stay in contact with friends and support each other. So like if you're You know, this is more than one tip, but actually if you're able to help friends out, especially also we live in Brussels, so outside Belgian Brussels, we don't, most of us don't have family here. And also actually the Belgian government is asking people not to have children looked after by grandparents anyway, because they're so at risk. So help each other out. You know, I think that's one of the best things that we can do for each other. I mean, whilst I think this is a terrible thing to happen, I also think it could bring out the best in people's relationships because people you know, rally and, and pull together and, you know, it's it could be something where actually people discover what being neighbourly is like and having to stay at home and be a bit more local and take care of those closest to you. It's a complete inversion of this whole kind of ruthless cosmopolitanism uh, and sort of, you know, the easy jet generation. So I'm quite interested to see what happens going forward. Excellent. Thank you so much and stay safe as we say these days. Thank you, you too. Thank you for listening. For follow-up, you can find us on all major podcast platforms and all social media platforms, including our Instagram, Lights on Europe. So feel free to go there now and leave us your review, likes, feedback, as well as tips on who would you like to hear interviewed next time. Bye!